The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, Doxa Church. Today's scripture reading is found in Luke chapter 19, verses 5 through 10 and verses 16 through 24. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, it's found on page 878 or you can follow along on the screen behind me. Starting in Luke 5, or verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourthfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And in verse 16, The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, there is your mina, here is your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You know that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they, (laughs) this is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, let me open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We, uh, We pray that you'd open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, just to kind of step back and to um, let your word penetrate our hearts. Let your word uh, inspire us, encourage us, renew us, let it strengthen us. Uh, We thank you so much that we are a redeemed people, that uh, the price, the penalty for our sin has been paid in full, and uh, that we are children of a holy king, a righteous God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So I've, uh, I do a lot of shopping with my daughter, Mary. Um, it's kind of the, this weird father-son thing. And uh, we'll, 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 just, we'll, go, we'll go to the mall and just troll. And, and knowing that I'm not cheap but thrifty, it kind of affects what we purchase and where we go. So um, 
And, and it's really, it's an interesting thing to kind of, with a 15-year-old daughter, to go um, shopping. And, and, and she's not alone with the shopping problem. I'm part of it, too. Um, so I, I recently picked up this shirt. You like, you like this shirt? The price tag on this shirt was $79.50. Now, I don't know who buys those th- that type of clothing, um, <clears throat> but I, I didn't pay $79 for this. Uh, it's made by Calvin Klein, though. Nice clothing. I like nice clothing. Um, but, but I've got a confession to make about this clothing, and my underwear is on the right way this morning, by the way. So just if you're thinking, oh, no, not the underwear thing again. <coughs> For those of you who weren't um, with us, I don't know, what it was a couple months back, I, I was teaching, and I, I came up here and confessed that my underwear was on backwards. So that's if you're going, what's up with his underwear? That's what's up with his underwear. It's on right this morning. But, but as I was exiting, um, as I was leaving uh, Belk, the alarms went off. So what do, what do you do when that type of thing happens? Um, you know, nobody else is leaving as I'm going, so I just kind of look around, and I just keep walking. You know, you try not to look guilty, right? That's what you try not to do. And you just kind of scurry along at that pace. Um, so, so when I get home, I take the shirt out, and, and I have a revelation. I know why the alarms went off. I don't know if you guys can see this here, but there's a, there's a little tag here that kind of created the problem. So, you know, I go, well, that makes a lot of sense all of a sudden. So a little more comfortable not tucked in, by the way. You got to leave it out there. And, and so, you know, I wonder what they would have said when they find the thing on it, you know. It's a, kind of an interesting revelation. So, so it kind of makes me look like a thief, doesn't it? I mean, in all frankness, if you have one of these and you're walking around in the public, you would think uh, it wasn't paid for. So, so here's my dilemma, though. And, and I love the word dilemma because it's when you have two choices and both are bad. So I looked at this thing closely, and I have some pretty nifty tools. And I kind of like prod a little bit and tinker a little bit and stick some things in there and jimmy it around and see if I can press the button. It'll pop open, and it doesn't. It doesn't work. And I got a, hack, a hacksaw. You know, I could use a blowtorch maybe, but, you know, as I started thinking this one through, I, I have friends who've advised me that you don't want to try that with this type of gizmo. Now, I don't know where they get that knowledge and information from, uh, but the word was basically you'll destroy the garment before you get the gizmo off. So my dilemma now is take the blowtorch to it or go back to Belk. And so when you're, you know, it's interesting because the alarm usually goes off when you're coming out, not going in. So I can't even, I'm wondering in my head, do I, do I kind of scurry quickly from the front door to the register to that place where I can plead my case? But I, I was, as I'm thinking about all of this, it kind of makes me think about sin. You know, when, 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 when you're doing something and that alarm goes off, you know, and how do we deal with that? You know, our conscience our conscience convicts us. And, that, you know, I was just thinking that, you know, what's really kind of crazy is that at the moment I'm leaving Belk, the alarm goes off, and I feel guilty. Now, I don't know what for. Now, if we really pop the hood and take a look underneath, there's, there's some good reasons for that. Um, but truthfully, it's, it's you, inherent in us is knowing that 
I'm really guilty. There's something somewhere that needs to be done about my behavior. And I, and I wonder if that is simply the Holy Spirit in humanity as a whole who convicts us. That lets us really know when that alarm goes off, it goes off for a good reason. Even if you think at that moment you're doing all the things you should be doing. So I think about how people deal with sin. Do you have that feeling? And, and trying to clean up our sin without the power and grace of God is probably like trying to get this thing off with my blowtorch. It's only going to make a bigger mess. So opening this morning, how, 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 do, how do we deal with our sin whether or not you hear the alarms going off? And that's just a question for us. How do we deal with that sin? We're, we're covering in chapter 19 two, two stories. Zacchaeus, I'm not going to sing the song, was a wee little man. Wee little man was he. No, I'm not going there. I'm not that... Uh, musically inclined. So we'll leave that one alone, but we're going to talk about Zacchaeus, and we are going to talk about this parable of the ten minas. So I want to put in context here where we are with Jesus and his ministry at this point. Um, He's on his way to Jerusalem. This will be the last week of his life. He'll be around for five days when he enters Jerusalem. Um, He is going to be victoriously welcomed into that city on Palm Sunday, He'll teach in the city by day, and by night he'll sleep outside of the city. That's an interesting thing in and of itself. And four days later, he'll celebrate the Passover supper with his disciples, and that night he'll be betrayed by Judas. And then on the last day, he'll be falsely accused, tortured, and brutally murdered. Um, his execution will be that of a shameful, shameful crucifixion with two thieves on either side of him. So as he's marching up to Jerusalem, and the, and the passage opens up with that in Luke 19.1, it says, he entered Jericho, which is about 17 miles from Jerusalem, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, which means he was probably hated the most of all tax collectors, because tax collectors were the people um, that were working for Rome to tax the people to fund Rome in oppressing their people, and they use their own people to, to, to receive that tax. So if you wanted to hate somebody, you'd be justified hating him. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeing, seeking to see Jesus, uh, see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Note that. If you got your own Bible in there, note those words, received him joyfully. Um, I've got this paragraph written into my notes, and there's only one highlight, and it's received him joyfully. And that says so much. I could spend the next hour there on how we receive him joyfully. Because when you see who he truly is, there's a conviction of, I have blown it and I've made a mess. And my life's, uh, I have whatever problems or circumstances are going on, it seems they grow dim. When you realize what you receive in Christ Jesus. And I think at that moment, Zacchaeus probably got it. He probably got it. And I think scripture confirms that where he received him joyfully. Happiness and joy are two absolutely different things, by the way. Happiness are when you got things that you want. And joy is something taking place on the inside that's not circumstantial. And so when he looked at Jesus, something happened on the inside, not not externally. 
And when they, and this is probably most likely the Pharisees and the ruling religious elite, when they saw it, they all grumbled, he's gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And the, this is off the ESV, but the NIV says something that puts it, when I read this, I thought this is a declaration of what he's doing now as a result of Jesus coming into his home, which I think is accurate. The NIV says, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. Now, under the law, a voluntary restoration would require the value of whatever was given plus a fifth when it was a voluntary restoration. Now, if you stole something and got caught there, it was the original value with fourfold. So Zacchaeus is stepping above and beyond where he would have had to go if he were making voluntary restitution, but saying, you can treat me as if I'm a thief or I stole it, in terms of the way he pays it back. And Jesus said to them, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that uh, seek and save the lost. And I like the other reading. I read another reading. It says, that which is lost. Um, so we covered, before we did this series, um, the multicultural, multi-generational, multi-ethnic generation, um, where we left off, we were covering a place in Luke where we covered somebody called the rich young ruler. And I'm going to put this in context because they're chapters back to back. And you've got, you'll understand where I'm going with this in a minute. But in chapter um, 18 of Luke, verse 18, it says, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your mother and father. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was very sad because he was a man of great wealth. You know, it's interesting as I read that now, I think, boy, the guy would have had a short ministry too, because this was also, you know, shortly before the, um, the, his crucifixion. So you have this passage, this contrast drawn out with two wealthy men, and I want to give you just the parallels, and then I want to give you the disparities and just a little bit of takeaway. So for both these guys, they were both very rich. They were both powerful, connected men. Both had Abraham as their father. They were traditional Jews. Both had a personal encounter with Jesus. Both knew they were not right with God, and both at a minimum had a sense that their own works were insufficient to get them into right standing with God. And Jesus gave them both the truth. And now look at the dis disparity here. The rich young ruler was a church member, and Zacchaeus was not. You know, when they said he's a sinner, he wouldn't have been allowed into the synagogue, into the temple worship. They said, no, no, you can stay outside. And I think that's interesting because the person who would have told Zacchaeus, you can't come in, would have been somebody like the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was righteous, at least in his own eyes, and Zacchaeus knew he was not. Zacchaeus was a party guy. I'm I feel comfortable telling you that when they say he, he's, a, he's a sinner. He had a reputation. The scribes and Pharisees, the guy who said, oh, look, Jesus is hanging out with a sinner. Well, it wasn't just a good hunch. Your reputation precedes you. 
And so Zacchaeus was a guy who liked to have a good time. He had the money to do it also. And because he wasn't invited into the temple, he would have blown it out saying, what's the point? It doesn't matter if I'm going to hell anyway. Might as well feel good in the interim. The rich young ruler was dignified. And we see this with him showing up to Jesus saying, well, I've done all these things and I've kept the law and I'm a good man. And on the other hand, Zacchaeus was not. And it's clear a grown Hebrew man climbing into a tree was, was a show of, of, of um, could you imagine your grandfather climbing a tree just for fun? All right, now, and some of you might say yes, but I got to be honest. I never could see my grandfather scale in a tree. That would have been undignified. So you've got this little guy going up the tree. The rich young ruler came to Jesus, and Jesus came to Zacchaeus. I think that's an inter- there's a huge disparity there. Zacchaeus was not told what to do to get right with God. The rich young ruler was. And I think, again, that's a really interesting thing when, when you kind of take that apart, um, how the outcome plays here. Zacchaeus knew he was a sinner, and the rich young ruler did not think he was. Zacchaeus was obedient to Jesus' words, and very simple words, hey, get out of the tree. But he was still obedient, yet the rich young ruler wasn't obedient to Jesus' words. Zacchaeus' actions revealed a belief in who Jesus was, and obviously the rich young ruler's actions did not uh, reveal that he truly believed who Jesus was. And when Jesus departed, Zacchaeus was joyful, and the rich young ruler was sad. And on the day of their encounter with Jesus, Zacchaeus was saved and the rich young ruler was not. And I think that I'm pushing a little bit there, but I feel comfortable from the story to draw those conclusions. So the takeaway, what is the takeaway here? And it it concludes with that line, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. You know, if there's no need, Christianity has nothing to offer. If you don't understand who you are apart from his grace, if you don't understand who you are in in the presence of a holy God, there is no need. And so the declaration is pretty simple and straightforward. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. And if you're not lost, or worse, if you don't think you're lost, this is a nuisance at best. Now, I'll give you my illustration here for the women. If your husband is driving, and he he is obviously lost but doesn't think so, how does he respond to you when you offer directions? Well, it's pretty evident very quickly that that there's a little flash of red and I don't need any help from you. And the point here with this is is that Christ is saying that if you don't come to that place where you know I am lacking, where I am sinful, where I am fallen, where I am broken, where I am corrupt in the inner recesses of who I am, this is all pointless. Um, the co- well, the coffee's pretty good here, so I shouldn't say that. You know, a lot of places I go, the coffee's not so hot. But so if you wanted a good cup of coffee, this would be an appropriate place on Sunday morning to come. Um, but apart from that, um, if you're not lost, there's nothing to offer. And so let me ask this question today, and, and, and this is twofold. It can be layered. You know, we can be saved and be lost. Because this book isn't just about a salvation experience. It's about a transformation in in who we are as human beings. It's a book about a power that indwells us, that allows us to display a behavior that is inconsistent with this world and which at the same time displays um, 
a, um, a power and a presence that cannot be attributed to human attributes. Meaning that as we live out our life, there's a light that comes through us that only gives credit to the presence of God in our lives. So we can be lost in a salvation sense, or we can be lost in a sense that we're not fully accessing and utilizing the power of God through this book, through the spoken word. Are you feeling lost this morning? Is there an area of your life where you're feeling lost? Here, here's, and, and so I'll close with something on that feeling lost sense. But, but if you are, you don't have to stay that way. From a salvation standpoint or from a Christianity walk with the Lord point, you don't have to stay there. Another truth that runs through this passage, and I think it's, kind of, it's a bigger, it's not a bigger truth, but it's a very strong undercurrent, because both of these men were wealthy. The, the question, or, or here's better yet, a statement, how we handle our wealth reveals the state of one's heart. See, Zacchaeus was liberated spiritually, and his wealth no longer had a chokehold on him. See, him saying, I give half my wealth, was a result of something that changed inside. It wasn't him saying, oh, I want to be in right standing with God, therefore I will. It was the other way around. There was something that happened on the inside that gave evidence to how his heart was attached to things of this world compared to before he, how, to compared before he was to that encounter with Christ. And the rich young ruler was not liberated and remained chained to his wealth. So the question really is this, what does the handling of our worldly wealth tell us about the state of our heart this morning? What does the handling of our worldly wealth tell us about our hearts this morning? And is wealth simply a means of navigating through life to do God's work? Or is our wealth something that gives us a stature, a feeling of security, a feeling of, of liberty, a feeling of superiority? And again, you can have a salvation experience and that wealth can have a, have a stranglehold on you. And, and you're saying, well, Jonathan, I don't have a whole lot of money. That's not the point. A little wealth can do it. Just a little bit is enough to mislead us of any brand of sin, whether it's the treasures of this world, the lust of the eye, the craving of the flesh. doesn't matter. You don't have to be wealthy to have a problem with wealth. Because what's happening is we're, we're, we're putting a misplaced dependence upon something apart from the person of Christ. And that's where the heart check comes in this morning. All right, we're going to get out of here and we're going to keep moving because I'll never get done in time. The servants called to account is the title of my second section. Um, I had actually the caption. I didn't give you this in opening. Paying the full price was the caption of this morning's teaching. The first section was Zacchaeus gives an accounting, and the second section was servants called to account. And so I want to give a little backdrop to this passage. First off, the one thing we can conclude about the passage, and again, I feel comfortable saying this, is that it's not a salvation passage. This is not saying, oh, if you do certain things, you will be saved. Um, there's two classes of people here. Um, one are servants. They're the sons of God, apparently. Um, well, let me say this. There are servants, and there were those who were classified as enemies of his. And the servants is interesting because Matthew is, is a similar passage. I'll get to that in a minute. But I got a little hung up on the one servant who didn't use the, the mina well here. It in, there's a part of me that thinks he was actually, if he's a servant, the parallel is that he is a child of God, but simply that he didn't use wisely what God gave him. And we're going to unpack that in a, in a couple minutes. But there's two groups of people. 
So if the passage were about salvation, it would create something we call works-based theology. It would say, what you do here and now determines where you go after death. Now, that is absolutely inconsistent with what we believe in doxa and our statement of faith, and I believe what Scripture says. And, and let me just give this to you. Salvation comes to man not by man's own works ever. This is where Christianity forks from all the other religions out there, and it's a huge fork. Psalm 62.1 says, Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. John 3.17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Romans 3.23-24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by the grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. John 14.6 tells us, Jesus answered, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So our salvation is completely a work or an act of God made possible through who Jesus Christ is. And I don't think we can ever say that too many times in any church setting. This is, I can't do what is necessary to fix the problem with sin between me and a holy God. I can't. I never will. And I believe that humanity falls into the same class I'm in this morning. So if the passage isn't about salvation, what is it about? And so we'll get to that. The second thing to note here in this passage, similar passages in Matthew 25. What's interesting in Matthew is that Matthew gives these servants varying amounts of wealth, each according to ability. In Luke, the same amount is given. So one says your gifting is in play, and in Luke, it's not at all. Uh, Matthew's rewards are undefined. They don't say um, what they're going to get. And Luke's rewards are, are actually governance over cities or the stripping, the consequence of not using it wisely, of stripping what one has. Matthew's worthless servant is condemned and punished, where Luke's servant is only stripped of what he has. And there's a big, a big difference, once again, theologically. Um, so the Luke passage, this, this passage with Jesus marching into... Um, Jerusalem gives the Jews a couple heads up. The first thing is that it opens up and it says, as they heard these things, Luke 19.11, as they heard these things in Zacchaeus' house, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So the, the heads up here is that they're thinking Christ, who was the, the Old Testament Messiah, the fulfillment of all this Old Testament prophecy, he's going to come into Jerusalem, he's going to overthrow the Roman Empire, he's going to establish his reign, and he will be the God of the Jews. And he will establish his reign with justice, with truth, with quality, all, all the things the Old Testament spoke about. And so that expectation from a myopic standpoint from that immediate moment is completely misplaced. Jesus wants to reinforce the reality, which is this, that the Jews are going to reject Jesus, that Jesus is going to go away, that he is going to come back, and then at that time, the kingship of Jesus is going to be established. So if you read the passage looking at that, you'll go, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So it, it, it starts to illustrate um, the things that are to come. Now, it also titles this as a parable, which is, again, a story that illustrates some truth or makes some point. And typically, it's one point, but I think there's a lot more we can pull out of here. So the expectation here is Jesus marches into Rome and uh, Jerusalem overthrows the Roman Empire and liberates the people. 
And that's obviously not what happens as a result of this paragraph. But what is going to happen, there will be a liberation, but it will not be over the Roman Empire. Jesus will go to Jerusalem, be crucified, liberate not only the Jews, but all of humanity from the oppression of sin and the fallen sinful nature within man. So let me pick it up on verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went to a country to receive for himself a kingdom and return, and then return. Giving ten, ten of his servants, calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. So a mina was a very, very little son. For an agricultural worker in Christ's day, it would be about a quarter of a year's salary. Very little amount of money. Um, and so for us, this par the parallel might be um, that Christ has given each of us some resource he expects us to use wisely. Um, and he goes away. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So this is an interesting statement. If you didn't get the historical context here, you'd say, this doesn't make sense. Well, first of all, even after Jesus was crucified, was he ever formally accepted by the religious ruling class? Of Jews? And the answer was absolutely not. They continued on their business as if he had never come. Yet in this time, the tradition would be that when Herod the Great was to get his power, Herod was the king who murdered the babies in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. The tradition would be that you would, as, as a potential king, you would go to the throne, not to the throne, to the steed of power, wherever that would be, and you would receive your kingship, and then you would return to the land and exercise your power. Herod's son... A uh, guy by the name of um, Herod um, Archelaus. Now, this was the guy who married his brother's wife that John the Baptist had condemned. Now, in all deference to uh, Archelaus, his brother, Alexander, was dead already, but his wife had since remarried but still had a living husband. So it was pretty bad, nonetheless. Anyway, you slice that. But at this point, they were in a, in a setting where this Herod, the son had dealt with an uprising in Jerusalem at the time of Passover, and everything went sideways before he was given the formal authority. And he brought the troops into Jerusalem, and, and 3,000 Jews were killed, and he canceled Passover. So then he goes to Rome to get his appointment. And people from his family literally went in a delegation to Rome to tell the Romans, we don't want you to be king. And so there's this parallel with Christ going to his father to be given this authority as king. And there are people going after saying, God, we don't want him to be king. So the parallel's really strong here. Yet the problem is, is Herod Archelaus came back as king. Now, what do you think happened to those who were opposing his kingship? And so the parallel squares up pretty well with the story we have here. Luke 19.15 picks up. When he returned, having received the kingdom... He ordered the servants whom he had given the money and called to them that they might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came to him, came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten, uh, mine, mina or mina, I don't know what it is, mine is more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful with very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are over five cities. So however you read this passage, one thing is really very, very clear. The rewards are disproportionate 
to the acts on behalf of the servants, meaning that God is excessive and overly lavish in his reward to his people for doing his work well. We pick up in verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Now, this statement that if Jesus is this king who's returned, which is obviously the point, um, this is not a loving Jesus picture of the God we serve. This is a picture of a holy God who says, I'm going to hold you to account. This is a picture of a God who says, I've given you something and I expect a return. This, the statements that, that you reap where you did not sow is an incredibly shrewd businessman saying, I want you to be savvy with the things I've given you. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. And there's where I kind of struggle with it, because it calls him a servant, but he's also wicked at the same time, yet he's not condemned in the end, which makes me think, I'll explain how I think this plays. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then, why then did you not put money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So the principle here is that, that those who use wisely what God entrusts to them, more will be given. Um, and the question really becomes used wisely. What, what, is, what does that mean? And I think that varies madly for each individual, but knowing the truth that we are each given something, um, we have a duty to utilize it to his glory and honor. So what are the things he entrusts us to use wisely? I give it four T's. If you've ever heard this, I use this often. Four T's are time, talent, truth, and God's treasure, or worldly treasure. Each one of us have time. Do we use it to God's glory? Our talent, natural gifting and skills and abilities, do we utilize those skills to his glory and honor? The treasure is worldly wealth. Do we utilize that as a means of honoring him and simply covering logistics? Or do we use it to exalt ourselves? And God's truth, most importantly. And I believe it's most important because when we access God's word, when we're in God's word, there is an empowerment. It talks about the word of God um, being powerful. And so what is the lesson for us in the body of Christ who fail to use wisely what he has entrusted us? I want to give you something now that I'm going to step kind of outside the passage. And here's where I think pictures come into play, and I think this is important. The EFCA has a certain view on end-time theology. And it's not a universal view. Um, but the view is basically this, that when Christ died, he went to heaven, and he told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you, by the way, but he's going to return. And upon his return, there will be a culmination of some warring events centered in the Middle East, but Christ will return, overthrow those warring against Jerusalem, uh, Israel in particular, and Christ will establish a physical reign here on earth for a thousand years. It's called a, a millennial period thing. They get it from Revelation 19, where there's a thousand-year period. Um, that theory, though, doesn't come generally speaking, from the New Testament. The disciples, as they're marching into Jerusalem, are thinking what? Your kingdom is going to be established here. This is not a question of some metaphysical new heavens and earth. 
He's, they were all thinking he's coming to set foot on this piece of dirt called earth and was going to establish his shop and set up his reign. And we, those loyal to Christ, would rule with him. So it's referred to as a millennial kingdom. Now here's where this becomes really interesting with this passage. Look at the parallels. So Christ was going to a distant land to become king. So when Christ died, he went to his father, seated at his right hand, is granted how much authority? All authority. And so at some future date, that king is going to return here. And so in the interim, here we sit, his people, and he's given a directive. Use wisely what I've entrusted to you. And so upon his return, what's he going to call us? You see, this servant, this last servant, wasn't thrown out into the woodshed and, and condemned and damned the way it was in Matthew. The servant who didn't use the mine as well is just sitting there. Now, the enemies in the last verse in this passage are going to be condemned. So those who clearly oppose Christ are going to be shut down. But Christ returns and says to us, give an accounting for how well you've used what I've given you. And the result, he says, I'll put you in charge of 10 cities. Now, think this through. If he literally came back, established his shop here, and we, by way of parallel, are the servants... If he said to them, I'm going to put you in charge of 10 cities, what do we think here with regard to this messianic thousand-year period? When I hear cities, I think Hong Kong, Paris, Los Angeles, Miami. What he's saying is that I'm going to give you a drastically disproportionate of authority to reign with me here in my kingdom when I return. And it matches. That's all I'm saying. There are some who do not take this view in terms of end-time theology, and that's fine. Um, I joke about it. I think the consensus at the end of the day in docs is that we're pantheists, meaning in the end it all pans out. He's going to come back and take care of us. Trust me. Uh, be careful of the word pantheist because that's actually that word has a different definition than the one I just used, and it could be really put you in a lot of trouble. But it makes sense. Because here's a couple other things that kind of make sense where it squares up. When Christ returns, 2 Timothy 4.4 tells us, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So meaning when Christ returns, it's very consistent in the parable with what, what potentially could happen here is that there will be a judgment for those who opposed him. And then there will be a blessing for those who would use wisely what he'd been given. But what about the one servant who's just stuck it in the handkerchief and did nothing with it? Is that man cast outside of this kingdom and condemned? And the answer in this passage is no. He's left to some, I don't want to say menial existence within that kingdom period, if that's an actual accurate interpretation. But what happens is that he forfeits the opportunity to play a fantastic role while reigning with Christ. And if we really believe things like that, would it really affect how we act and behave today? If we really know he's coming back, and I'm going to have to pull some coins out of my pocket and say, look, I multiplied them, where there will be a reward that will be fantastically disproportionate to anything that we could conceive of. And that's why I kind of laugh when I think, well, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Hong Kong, Beijing, Paris, to say, I'm putting you in charge of this town. You take care of it. And actually, you're going to manage a couple of these towns for me. So get ready. But imagine being able to not just manage the towns, but bring the glory, presence, justness, righteousness, and plan of God into that existence in the presence of humanity. You want to talk about a privilege? You want to talk about opportunity? 
And I've got a badge, by the way. My badge, I will work for the Department of Government of Godly Affairs. Um, if there is a kingdom, I have a badge. It's with not eternal affairs. It's godly affairs. And I'd be the undersecretary of godly affairs for the Department of Social Services. Meaning this, if there's a dysfunctional home, I can come to the home and I can bring them a spiritual message that will work. Versus today when DSS has a problem with the home, what type of solution are they bringing them? A secular godless plan that has no real impact or change. And so it's just an interesting spin on this passage. And when I, when I got assigned to this passage, I'm like, tough, you're going to hear from me. That's it. So it's an interesting thing to hear that. And it closes out, but for the enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And let me ask you a question about this, because from an evangelistic standpoint, we say, well, good riddance, they deserved it anyway. But these are people sitting next to you and me in our office on Monday morning. If you knew they had 24 hours to live, and would face that type of judgment for our holy God, would it affect what we say to them in the morning? And it's so easy to go to sleep to forget the significance of the stakes of this game. But then you read a passage like that, and you say, but Joe's a nice guy. I really get along with him well. That that type of condemnation is coming. Does that affect the sense of urgency that we have with those we love and around us? To either, one, give them the gospel, but two, even bigger, is to display who the person of Christ is to them. To drop ourselves intentionally before them. To spend time praying, God, how do I reach these people? How do I show them who you are? How do you lead me? How do I yield? How do you guide me? Because here's the big deal. This is the real business of converting the minus from one to a hundred. That's the business. Do we display the person of Christ through everywhere we go and who, with every person we interact with? Is there a aroma of Christ left in the presence in our wake as we leave a set of circumstances? And i got to be honest, I don't want to be the guy that has two issues to deal with. No job in a coming kingdom and to watch those I care for around me face that judgment. And I'm not the one that has the final say, but in some manner, he is using us to implement that plan. And so I come back to the quandary when I came in here this morning about this gizmo attached to me, because the, this, this gizmo displays, when I think about sin, it displays so much about what's going on. And the, and the problem, first of all, is that we have to acknowledge is I, I can't get this thing off. When you run this sin comparison, it's not coming off by my own hand. I'll do more damage than good trying to rectify the own sin in my life. And I'm not saying we don't need accountability, that, that we don't take actions to address sin. But at the end of the day, between me and a holy God, I'm defenseless when it comes to rectifying my sin before a holy God. So for you today, do you live with that feeling in your gut that the alarms just keep going off, that you know that someday that that judgment, that that condemnation is coming? When I return to Belk, I'm going to bring the receipt. You know what the receipt says when I walk through the doors at Belk? It says the purchase price for this has been paid. And, and if you're here this morning... You don't have this receipt when you come before a holy God. The receipt that someone else paid the price. Where are you left standing? Hebrews 9.27 tells us this, And just as it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. 
And when we come before a holy God, the price has to be paid for our sins. Zacchaeus knew this. His conscience had convicted him of his sin. He knew that God was holy, and he knew he was a sinner. Yet what happened when Christ came into his life? He received him joyfully because he knew at that moment that the price had been paid in full for his sin between a holy God. And so that's what we profess at Doxa when we come here collectively as a church to worship and praise God. We're collectively acknowledging we've got a sin problem. It's been paid, and we're rejoicing. We're acknowledging a holy God for what he's done for us on a cross, and it culminates in what happens at that table because it reflects the actual payment of our sin. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. Yet Peter, 1 Peter 2.24 tells us, he, Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his body on a cross. So for us who bank on what Jesus did, Romans 8.28 tells us this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's the joy that Zacchaeus had. He knew there was no more condemnation. And how did Zacchaeus receive that gift? He simply allowed Christ into his life. So if you're one of these people this morning here that are saying, I've not done that, I don't know how that works truthfully. You can say a prayer and I'm a sinner and help me, God, or you could sit there and just realize I'm hopeless without you. Please come and tell somebody about this experience if you're sitting here today. You know, I wonder as we go through each day if every time we sinned, one of these got affixed to us. You know, when the alarm goes off, you know what I kind of did actually with, with uh, the Belk experience? I started walking a little quicker. You know, I, I mean, and the problem for us today as believers, and, and, and I want to address us in the body of Christ, what do we do when we're sinning? Do we just shuffle along a little quicker? Or, or are you one of the people who tries to tuck his shirt in to make sure nobody else can see it? The problem here is that if every time I go through the day, one of these things got attached, I can't stick my shirt into my pants without a bigger waist size. And, and the point that I make with this is that, that we've got to be real about who we are, even in Christ, is that we're fallen, we're broken, we're fallible, yet we're redeemed. And I think that's the message we bring to this world, is that it's okay to be broken, fallen, and fallible, because we serve a holy God who has redeemed us. You know, it's funny today when that alarm goes off, I have to re remind myself, Jonathan, redeemed. Jonathan, redeemed. And I think that's a message for us to take away this morning. The other thing that I realize when I tell myself Jonathan redeemed, it does one thing. It drives the fuel in the fire that says I need to display who he is with me to everyone around me. Because I want to hear certain words when he returns. And those words are real clear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I, I pray for the people here that if somebody came here really struggling, um, that, that they could sense the joy that Zacchaeus received, that, that, that they could just receive him. Um, and that might not change facts or circumstances immediately, but Lord, we know, we know it does eternally. And I pray that you would use whatever those circumstances are to your glory and to your honor. 
Father, thank you so much for the redemption that we find in Christ Jesus. May he be glorified and honored. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.